Tick, tock, tick, tock. This is your James Bond moment. And I was just thinking, I am so dead. True Spies, with me, Hayley Atwell. Wherever you get your podcasts. From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, a look back at the historic referendum in Ireland that legalized abortion. One year ago this month, Irish citizens voted overwhelmingly to lift the country's ban on abortion, which had barred the procedure even for victims of rape and incest. This is a monumental day for women in Ireland. This is about women taking their rightful place in Irish society, finally. Ireland passed a constitutional amendment on the issue in 1983. Over the 35 years the amendment was in place, thousands of women with means traveled to the United Kingdom for abortions. Thousands more were forced to carry their pregnancies to term, even those women who knew their fetus had no chance of survival. Public opinion began to shift after one woman died during a miscarriage in 2012. Savita Halapanavar, who was 31 and who died last month in hospital of septicemia. Her widower says she was miscarrying and she would be alive if her request for a termination hadn't been refused. For a closer look at the fight to repeal the ban in Ireland, we spoke to Alva Smith. She co-directed the Together for Yes campaign. We also talked about abortion bans passing state legislatures in the United States. Alva, thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure to speak with you, Sarah, from Dublin. I wanted to actually start by going back before the 1983 referendum and ask you a little bit about what life was like in Ireland and what abortion access was in Ireland prior to 1983? Well, before 1983, abortion was completely prohibited by uh, an act which had been passed when the British were still, they thought, in charge of us here in Ireland. And it was called the Offences Against the Person Act 1861, which made abortion a criminal offence, punishable by life imprisonment with penal servitude, not only for a woman who would have an abortion, but for anyone who might assist her. So before 1983, that law was fully operational. And from about 1967, when the 1967 Act was passed in the UK, it began to dawn on women here in Ireland that they could actually go over to Britain to have an abortion. And Irish women begin travelling for abortions. Yes, exactly. I mean, slowly at first, because most women wouldn't have had the money to afford those trips, probably. And then around about the beginning of the 1980s, we had a lot of pressure being put on successive governments here by an anti-abortion lobby to put something into the constitution which they said would copper fasten that prohibition which we already had from 1861 written into our legislation. So they were looking for a constitutional guarantee that abortion would never become legal in Ireland. You're talking about an anti-abortion lobby that's external to the church, or was it part of the Catholic Church? Well, you know, nothing was ever completely external to the Catholic Church in Ireland at that time. So that really, I think you would have to say that church and civil society, as well as indeed church and state, worked very much hand in glove. And I think that the more explicit separation of church and state really only happened in Ireland as and from the the end of the 1980s, the beginning of the 1990s. So in 1983, there is a constitutional amendment. Was there an active 
pro-choice, as we would say in the United States, lobby against a constitutional amendment? Uh, Well, first of all, I would say that there wasn't even a very big pro-choice movement here in Ireland. We'd had the women's movement that we were involved in on many, many, many issues during the 1970s. But our, our call at that particular time, around about 1980, was for contraception. We didn't even have the right to contraception in Ireland. So women's rights, obviously, around the world in the late 1960s and through the 1970s, the idea of women's liberation takes hold in the West. What did it look like in Ireland? Oh, it was very, very difficult. I was growing up in Ireland as a young woman at that time. And there was something like, you know, 25 things legislatively that you couldn't do. We didn't have contraception. Obviously, we didn't have access to abortion. You certainly couldn't call yourself lesbian, as I can now. You couldn't hold your job down in the public service. Once you got married, you had to retire from the public service. You couldn't have a bank account in your own name. There was certainly nothing like equal employment legislation. We didn't have that until well into the mid-1970s. I mean, I could go on and on. Rape was not a crime within marriage. Convictions for rape, they're still rather scarce, but they were absolutely non-existent back then. So I think that life in Ireland, for all women really growing up here, was very repressive. It was very difficult. The Catholic Church was the main authority figure, and we were all brought up to be good Catholic girls, you know, who kept our hands in our white gloves until we got married and who then went on to have six, seven, eight children and not a prospect necessarily of having a job or a career. So the women's movement was very important for us here in Ireland because it began to give us new horizons. But of course, really what actually happened was that because of Roe versus Wade, Uh, Effectively, in 1972, there was a lot of worry and upset amongst anti-abortion lobbyists that Catholic countries in Europe would go the way of all flesh, i.e. go in the same direction as the US. Irony of ironies, really, Sarah, when you think about it nowadays. But um, they started to lobby government as and from, I would say, around about 1978-79, when at that time in Ireland there was a very tiny little pro-choice group, very, very, very small which had been formed, I think, at the beginning of 1979. You're not talking about more than half a dozen, a dozen women. And it hadn't been a very public issue because abortion was so profoundly stigmatised in this country that there was no way that you could even get up and make a radical call out on the streets to have abortion. You were looking at a country which was enthralled to the Catholic Church where we did not even have access to contraception. When was contraception made legal? Well, it, some form of contraception became legal during the 1970s. Again, actually, following late 70s, following a court case, the court decided that a woman should be entitled to import contraceptives, i.e. the pill, for her own private use and benefit for family reasons. And it sounds as though there was a great deal of fear associated with all things sex, sexual, sexuality. Oh, yes. But that, that is the mark of the Catholic Church, that sexuality, in particular women's sexuality, is very much to be feared. It constitutes a threat to the social order because presumably there is a view that if women are allowed to get out of sexual control, that they will lead men severely astray. Now, the, the reality, of course, is that women and men did have sex outside 
suicide marriage in Ireland. But the women paid the price of that by being incarcerated in very punitive institutions, uh, in having their babies taken away from them and in many cases exported for money to the USA. Those babies were adopted by people who could afford them. That was in the US. Uh, the most really dreadful history of cruelty and brutal treatment of women who stepped out of line. I think things have dramatically changed, of course, in the intervening years. In 1983, though, a constitutional amendment is passed. Can you describe the efforts that you and others made beginning then and, and through the years to repeal that amendment? Well, what we were doing was opposing the insertion of the amendment. So those who were opposed to having anything put in the Constitution to do with abortion, uh, we formed an anti-amendment campaign. And that campaign was fought very largely on what you might call legal and theological grounds with some medical grounds as well. So that there was a huge argument and very bitter and very divisive debate, ultimately over two-thirds of the voters voted in favour of inserting that amendment. Family members were pitted against family members, people who were anti-amendment, people like myself and uh, others who played, I was a very young woman at that time, others who played a very prominent role in that campaign were subjected to dreadful treatment. They were insulted and humiliated and they were harassed and intimidated. I experienced some of that myself um, in the following referendum in 1992. We were really treated as outcasts and pariahs and not as people who were suitable to be members of polite, conventional establishment society. And how did that play out? Obviously, this is the era before social media, which has a new sort of front in that kind of attack. How did it play out in that era? Well, that's a very good question. I, I think what social media does is gives you an additional tool, but it doesn't replace the tools that, that are still used in and by traditional media. And radio, for example, has always played a very big role in our in our lives generally in this country. And I think particularly in our political lives, it's really very interesting. So radio was a very important medium around the country. Not everybody necessarily had television in 1983, but they, everybody had a radio. So a lot of the debates and the discussions were actually held on radio and then television debates were eagerly watched probably by 100% of the people who had a television in Ireland at the time and inviting their neighbours and their friends and their family members into their homes to watch it. But of course, what's also always been very important in our political lives here has been the one-to-one canvassing, the campaigning that you go out from house to house, from place to place, from village to village and town to town, and you always talk with people. And it still remains a hugely important way of campaigning. But... When you're in locked into a very bitter, highly confrontational political situation, that's a very difficult thing for you as the pariah person to knock on somebody's door and say, I oppose the amendment to the Constitution and I'm here to tell you why. What is your view? And they had things thrown at them. They were called names. Dogs were set after them. All kinds of really very deeply unpleasant things happened at that time. One of the things that stands out about the constitutional amendment, especially in light of what's happening in the United States today, is the 
parity with which the fetus was seen with the life of the mother. Was that a difference between the 1861 law and the 1983 referendum? Well, as far as I know, the Irish constitutional amendment in 1983 was the first time that the term unborn was actually inserted into a constitutional or legislative framework. So there is absolutely no doubt that the anti-abortion lobbyists and campaigners here were very influenced by the anti-abortion lobby in the US at the time. And they had been promoting this use of the term unborn because they wanted to set up a spurious equality between a woman and a fetus. So they spoke in terms of the mother and the unborn, thereby personalising this uh, relationship. True Spies is the ultimate debrief on the stories only spies can tell. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Listen now at spyscape.com forward slash I spy. There are two moments in the transition for Ireland that I want us to turn to. One is 1992, when a 14-year-old girl is raped and made pregnant, and she becomes a national test of whether someone can leave Ireland to achieve an abortion. It seems to shift something about the way people see the debate. Is that correct? Yes. I, well, I think Ireland had changed a bit during the, the course of the 1980s, which had been quite uh, economically difficult years. But I think that the benefits of increased access to education, much more television, much more media, and also more foreign travel, and a somewhat recovering economy were beginning to have an impact by the 1990s. So already Ireland had began to move away from that kind of dinosauric Catholicism that we had been festering in for decades and decades and had begun to change. And when the case you're referring to, which was known as the X case, when that occurred, people were absolutely horrified that a 14 year old who had been raped could be forced by the state to continue her pregnancy. People did not think that that was a good idea. They were not at that stage asked if they wanted to repeal the Eighth Amendment. They were asked if we thought that the threat of suicide should be ruled out as grounds for abortion. And people said no, they did not think the threat of suicide should be ruled out because it did constitute a real risk to a girl or a woman's life. We were asked if we wanted women to have the right to travel abroad to another jurisdiction for an abortion and we said yes we absolutely did and we were also asked if we wanted women to have the right to information about how they could obtain an abortion in another jurisdiction and we said yes we absolutely did and of course when you think about it Sarah these were questions that were put to a fully fledged democracy and we were having to say of course we want the right to travel of course we want the right to information these are our democratic rights and the people were very clear about that the problem was that we had a very cowardly government who refused to ask the people point blank do you want to repeal the eighth amendment i'm not sure we would have won if we'd been asked the question at that time but the fact remains that we weren't asked that question and of course in many ways it suited the establishment in this country to say we don't have abortion in Ireland and the reason we didn't have abortion in Ireland was precisely because women could travel to Britain and Ireland could keep its Catholic hands absolutely clean. Many, many thousands of women do begin to travel for abortion, those who have the economic access to the 
yes. purses that can do so. But then that also creates some sort of division economically between women, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, at that time, you had approximately between six and a half and seven thousand women traveling every year. And that was 12 or 13 women every day for abortion in Britain. And of course, that was something which was really the prerogative of women who could access the financial means to do so. It also, of course, meant that for many women who were perhaps in abusive relationships or who couldn't get any time off work or who had a number of small children and didn't have childcare, women who had a disability, women who were in care. There were all kinds of groups of women who were definitionally excluded from that possibility. And that remained the case until the Eighth Amendment was finally repealed a year ago. Let me, let me ask you about one other moment, though, that seems to have been a turning point, which is in 2012, when a woman named Savita uh, Halapanavar died during a miscarriage or as the result of a miscarriage. It seemed to me that her case galvanized Irish society in a way that nothing else had before. Why? Well, the X case did really galvanise people in this country. It certainly did. But we're talking about a different society. And remember that we had another referendum again in 2002 on the issue, which asked us if we wanted to remove the threat of suicide as grounds for abortion. And again, we said in 2002, we said, no, we don't want to do that. So that people were exhausted and fed up by the time this terrible tragedy happened in 2012, when this poor young woman was refused a termination of her pregnancy when she was inevitably miscarrying in any event and people were absolutely outraged. We still had no legislation. The only law we had was the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. That's all we had and a constitutional amendment. You know, we all knew that we were living a lie and living in the deepest hypocrisy by pretending that we didn't have abortion in Ireland. Yes, we did have an abortion rate in Ireland, but we exported it. And we exported it by, you know, forcing and enabling some women to travel, but of course, deeply unjustly and unequally, not enabling others to do so. One of the things that was striking to me as I began watching the referendum unfurl was coming back to what you talked about earlier, the stigma around abortion. Women started to share abortion stories, stories of travel or stories of not being able to travel. Did something change? Well, you know, it's very strange. Around about 2012, there was a group called Terminations for Medical Reasons, which is where you have a diagnosis of a fatal fetal anomaly, which means that the fetus won't survive birth by much more than possibly a few days. And those women and couples began to tell their stories around about that time. And over the years, there had been various small projects where women had talked about their abortions, but it was really difficult. But somehow something was released in, I think, the outrage that people felt at Savita Halapanava's death. It was cathartic in a sense. They were at last able to release and reveal something which had had to be held in the very deepest secrecy within themselves. And for many, 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 many women, they'd never spoken to a family member. They'd never spoken to a partner, maybe, about this. They'd never spoken to friends. And I think that what happens in that kind of situation, it's human psychology, that more women begin to come on board and say, you know, that woman is saying she's talking in a way which was absolutely the same for me. And women began to realise that if we were going to repeal the Eighth Amendment, we're going to have to stand up and say, this is the truth of our lives. 
you have this galvanization after the preventable, it seems, death of Savita and women beginning to tell their stories. Nevertheless, was it shocking when you saw the actual results of the referendum? What was that day like? Well, uh, you know, between the starting to tell the stories around about 2013, probably, and 2018, May 2018, a lot of water flowed onto that bridge, a huge amount of work was done. And one of the reasons that we won that referendum was that we started preparing for it in 2013 and said, we've got five years to do this because that's the length of public attention and women cannot wait any longer. And so how did you set out to do that? Well, we went at it absolutely hammer and tongs. And I think one of the key decisions we made back in 2013 was that we would build a very strong, broad uh, civil society and indeed wider, including political parties, platform to fight this together and that it would go beyond the traditional pro-choice and feminist groups. We needed as pro-choice and feminist campaigners to be absolutely the centre of the campaign, but we needed to bring in a much wider swathe of Irish society and to get them to understand and to accept that this was not just about women who needed abortions. It was about that and it was also about the kind of country that we wanted to live in, the kind of country that we wanted for our children and for our grandchildren and the kind of values that really mattered to us. But what was the pushback? Did it come from the church? Did it come from the government? Was there an anti-choice pushback at the same time? Uh, There was massive pushback from the anti-abortion side who understood very plainly that this was for real and that there was no possibility of our going away or disappearing. And they gradually, I think, came to understand that we certainly weren't going to be frightened away, that we were in a much stronger position socially, if you like, and even socioeconomically at the beginning of that decade than we had been at any time previously and that we were not going to let go of this. And we also had this fantastic asset, which was a young generation of people who simply didn't think about the Catholic Church in the way that my generation did and who were saying things like, but why shouldn't we have access to abortion? And about the same time, from about 2007, we had had a movement for equal marriage rights for lesbians and gays, which I happened also to be very centrally involved in. And that was opening up ground on that other dimension of the sexuality spectrum. And that was very powerful. And we knew that there would be a referendum coming on same-sex marriage. And in fact, that did come in 2015. So our job in building our coalition and our platform was to build and build and build, but to wait until we would win that referendum. I was sure we would win it. And indeed, we did by 62% or something. Um, The day of the counting of the votes in the marriage equality referendum, I was I remember being down at the count centre with leaflets, which I had specially made, which said, repeal the Eighth Amendment. That's what's next. Nevertheless, were you surprised by how overwhelmingly it passed? Sarah, I was completely stunned. I did think in the last week of what was a very tough, very demanding, very challenging campaign. We were hard pressed. But I did think in the last week that we just might get in with 55%. It was important for us to have more than 50%. Um, It was very important to make sure that it was real. But when the results were announced as 66.4%, we were 
absolutely stunned and overjoyed. I can't tell you the sense of relief that I had personally, as well as great joy, was absolutely immense because at long last, that terrible burden that had been laid on the shoulders of women in this country for really century and a half and more, that that was at last going to be lifted. And further than that, it meant that Irish people believed that women mattered, that our lives and our health matter and that we should be free to make our own decisions. So it was a great vote of confidence in women. And and we knew that internationally it would also serve as some kind of beacon of hope in, in what is, I think, truly a darkening world that we have at the moment. I'm sure you're following the abortion debate in the United States and the new yes. laws uh, in Alabama and also Missouri and Georgia. Based on your experience in Ireland, what do you think greater restrictions on abortion mean for women here in the United States? Well, I mean, you know, when I see the way Alabama has gone, which was basically where we were before last year, I am absolutely appalled and I I can't believe that this is actually happening. And it's quite clear that the strategy has now become very much bolder instead of just chipping away at state laws and making it more and more difficult for women to access abortion. There is now out and out war on Roe versus Wade. And of course, that has been permitted, allowed, enabled by uh, Trump appointing the judges to the Supreme Court that he was no doubt entitled to appoint, but who are absolutely right wing and who are going to swing, we know who would swing arguably a judgment on Roe versus Wade if it comes to that. One has to hope that it won't come to that. I think what's so important at the moment is that we should all across the world, because it's not only in the US that there are difficulties. In Europe, there are huge problems. In Poland, for example, Germany is under pressure. The Netherlands is under pressure. The populist extreme right is on the rise. We'll see what happens in European parliamentary elections. But this is a force which always targets sexuality and which always targets women. And we have to fight that in global solidarity. The difficulties in South America, elsewhere in Asia and let's not even begin to talk about the problems in Africa. So abortion is by no means a done deal for women across the world and my own view is that the stronger we can make our international solidarity and learning from each other's campaigns, the more hope we have of getting somewhere and I do want to say very strongly that you know I thought This was a campaign, one way and another, that I fought for 35, 36 years. I never gave up hope. I thought we absolutely have to keep on going, even when we had setbacks. In the United States, it seems as though there are two opposing arguments that don't have any intersection. One is on bodily autonomy, women's rights, control and choice. And the other is around some sort of fundamentally different question around when life begins. Having fought this battle in Ireland, was there any reconciliation with the church, with the religious arguments around this question? No. Or no? No, no, there wasn't. And I think that, in fact, I think that strategically what we chose to do, what we decided to do in this campaign was to move the debate away from the effectively theological question as to when life begins and to transfer 
the um, debate onto the ground of health and well-being. So what do women need for their health and well-being in the world? They need reproductive freedom. So we made that switch very, very consciously and very deliberately. And that meant that we were able to, in effect, refuse to argue when life begins or doesn't begin or whatever, and to say, look, there are many different beliefs around that particular question. Our concern is with women's well-being. Our concern is with women's health. Our concern is with what women actually require. And, you know, when women tell their stories of distress and pain and impossibility and being thwarted and so on and so forth. People believed them. They actually believed them. But it was very clear that we were losing when we stayed on the theological, philosophical ground. It was clear that we were losing when we were simply talking about women's right to choose. Given the referendum in Ireland on the one hand and the trend line in the United States, are you optimistic or pessimistic about where women's rights are going in the future? I think women's rights are still a huge battle. I try not to think too much about what's going to come round the corner, but to fight the battle that's in front of me now, knowing that if that battle's in front of me, it's in front of women elsewhere as well. We are experiencing a very, very bad downturn at the moment. But, you know, things come and they go, and we have to stay there solidly, massed. I am full of hope. But I also don't think it's an option not to be hopeful. You have to keep going. That's the only choice. Alva, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Sarah. That was Alva Smith, co-director of Together for Yes in Ireland. For her efforts in getting the Eighth Amendment repealed and paving the way to safe and legal abortion in Ireland, she and two of her colleagues were named to the list of 100 Most Influential People by Time magazine in 2018. First Person is produced by me, Sarah Wildman, with Benjamin Soloway. Our editor is Rob Sachs. Our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. We'll be back next Friday. Thanks for listening. As I was saying, True Spies is a new podcast in which real spies tell us about their role in the espionage operations that changed history. True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, meet the people who navigate this secret world. It was going to be a massacre. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Look for True Spies wherever you get your podcasts.